Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 259, and today's guest is Brian Kane, co-founder and chief operating officer of SourcePoint. There is a tremendous amount of information that has been written about the process of raising funding for startups, but for some reason, you don't see nearly as much information about the acquisition process. What are the good, the bad, or the ugly experiences? How does one get on the radar for a potential acquirer? What are the common pitfalls, etc., etc.? Based on Brian's track record, it was a perfect opportunity to get some solid advice for entrepreneurs to follow as he's been through multiple acquisitions via companies like Google and Facebook. Brian's latest startup is focused on data privacy for digital marketing as SourcePoint provides tools to protect consumer privacy, manage compliance, and optimize revenue. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like Brian's background story and how he got his career started in the tech industry and customer service, his experience in leadership roles in the tech industry at DoubleClick, AdMeld, and LiveRail, the story behind SourcePoint with his co-founder Ben Barokas and how their vision of transparency around usage of data became a reality, the current stage of SourcePoint and growth plans ahead, advice around hiring for startups and how to think about the recruiting process, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then you might want to add a VentureFizz subscription. It's our employment branding and hiring solution that helps to keep your company top of mind for our targeted audience of professionals in the tech industry. A VentureFizz subscription includes an employment branding page, unlimited postings to our job board, access to our exclusive content series, and so much more. Send an email to info at VentureFizz.com for all the details. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Brian. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Very much appreciated. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you because we got a lot to talk about. You've been through with like multiple companies that have scaled and have been acquired. So I'm like, you know what? That's a great first talking point where I look at all the commentary out there and there's a lot of raising capital, raising venture funding, raising seed capital, whatever the case may be. But I don't think there's enough content out there of acquisitions and like what when i think about acquisitions it's like okay how does the company even become targeted as a potential company to be acquired by another entity and then the due diligence process and how much time that involves the times it doesn't work out the times that it does so there's probably like a different pieces to the story that founders never even think about so since you've been through it multiple times i thought that would be a perfect starting point yeah um and i think it's a Obviously, it's a really interesting um, area of discussion, and it's one of the things that you know you can go to school and try to learn a lot about you know business, but un- unfortunately, it's one of those things where experiential learning is is really the best way to to understand what an, a, a merger or an acquisition really looks like. Um, so, what I would first of all start off by saying is like when you think about as, as a founder or as an operator at a company. And you think about you know trying to you know sell your company. I think what's interesting is the things that tend to lead to great outcomes from an acquisition perspective are are very much the same things that would lead to your business being successful generally. What I mean by that is, and this is you know, candidates will ask me this all the time, like are you, you know is your company going to be acquired? Are you going to sell your company? I'm like well. You know, it's not really that easy to just say you want to sell your company. The way I answer the question is like, what we want to try and do is something important and something that is meaningful and something that is adding value to the ecosystems we're targeting. And it's it sometimes comes across like, you know, it's like almost like a cute answer, but 
it really is the truth. In all the cases where companies I've been a part of have been acquired, it's because we have added some level of significant value to somebody in this ecosystem. We did something better than everybody else uh, from a com- and typically a combination of technology and services. So for, for me, I started my career in services back uh, in the early days at DoubleClick. And I've kind of grown up in the industry with this very strong belief that it's not just technology and not just services, but the combination of both where you unlock a lot of value. So, you know, for me, the, the, the deals I've been a part of, it's always been that combination of great technology and great services, which tend to add tremendous value to the folks we're selling to. And once you do that, uh, good things tend to happen. Good things tend to happen in terms of revenue growth. Good things tend to happen in terms of uh, customer testimonials. And these are all things that do play a role and are ingredients into getting acquired. Um, you know, what I, uh, something that, 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 that people don't always think about, but the role that great marketing plays in the evolution of a company and ultimately an acquisition. I think the value of a, a you know really strong customer testimonial in the press that talks about the value you're adding uh, tends to get the attention of other companies. But these are all things that you want to be doing anyway as an operator. You want to have great marketing for the purposes of growing your business. You want to have great customers for the purposes of growing your business. And those have been the things that have, uh, I think, been most pivotal um, and, and most sort of, um, you know, the, the biggest drivers of someone coming forward and saying, you know, let's talk, let's talk about ways in which we can work together. The one plus one equals three. Um, so that's one thing, like just in terms of like how you would possibly take your, your company and, and lead it to that sort of outcome. The other piece, having gone through m and um, I guess in one case, um, you know, um, twice from the same company, which was Google, um, What's really interesting, I think, and as an executive, it's important to recognize this, No, not every deal is going to be exactly the same. And what that means is you can bring a set of experience having gone through M&A. So I went through uh, DoubleClick's acquisition by Google, and then a few years later, went through Google's acquisition of AdMeld. And I thought having gone through the Google DoubleClick situation where I was, you know, part of that transaction, I thought I knew, okay, it's going to work in way X, Y, and Z for this next acquisition. And it really wasn't the case. And I think some of that is, you know, companies evolve their, their acquisition strategy. Google certainly did. They did a bunch of acquisitions and they learned from each and every one, but also M&A is very much a, um, a human process and the dynamics um, across you know the table, so to speak, one company to the other are different in each transaction. Um, so that changes the the, the way that, that different M and A transactions happen. And then, um, like mechanics wise, deals are different. Every deal is a little different. So you might go into the deal thinking it's going to be you know a deal for stock or a deal for cash, and you just don't know. You just don't know. Um, you know there there are best practices, but there's not necessarily a defined playbook. Um, so that's been, I, I think, one of my learnings, which is for the, you know, I don't know, four or five different different deals I've seen from different angles, everyone's a little different. 
Um, and that, that's been a lesson for me as well. You have to go in with an open mind. Um, and that's pretty much on the, the being acquired. I've also been on the buy side of M&A, uh, which is a slightly different angle. But again, go in with you know open mind. You can have um, you can leverage your experience. You can leverage your best practices from from prior transactions. But each one's going to be a little different. Um, that's another sort of angle from an M and A standpoint. And then maybe the 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 best advice I can give for anyone going through an M and A transaction is you know, if you're on the, the the target, if you're being acquired is really around open mind and just general open mindset going into the process. Um, in many cases, you know, the, there, there can be a feeling of, um, I'll use the word loss, but you're, you're giving something up. Like the, the way that we used to do, do things is, is going to change. Um, you're, you're, you know, this, in, in the case of one of my companies, we had a daily daily meeting, and uh, the biggest question that came up when the company was acquired is like, "Are we still going to have our daily meeting?" Like, yeah, we can still have that meeting; it's not a problem. But those little things um, tend to, if not not focused on, can actually turn into to, to big things. And I think going into a transaction, you just have to have an open mindset. And as a leader, setting the tone for your company going through M and A, I think it's your job to sort of, I would say, reset reality or at least set reality for your team that this is incredible. We've had this amazing uh, run. We should all be so proud. We should relish in the moment. We should celebrate. And we should be excited for, for what lays ahead of us. And in many cases, it's going to be the continuation of our vision. It's going to give us a better opportunity to achieve against that vision as part of a bigger company. But there's going to be change, and there's going to be some. Uh, there are going to be some things we need from you, which is you're coming into a new company, new systems, new tools, new processes, new people, different culture, and we're going to need everyone to sort of keep that in mind. You know, we're going to be part of this new company. We don't want to sit out there on an island and be like the old company faction within a big, bigger company. That's ten that tends to not be a successful strategy for M and A, and I think. You just have to go in and, and um, you know, get in the stream to the extent you can and really embrace the new culture. So for employees going through that process, that would be my advice as well. If you, uh, if you want to be a, a hanger on to how things were, uh, that might not work out for the best long term. Great, great, great advice. Lots of different angles there that we, I've never talked about on this podcast. So that was super helpful. Well, let's rewind the clock. So what were you like as a child, like those formative years? Like what did you study in college? Kind of those foundational things. Yeah, I, uh, I did. I have not had the, the straightest of paths. Um, so I grew up um, wanting to be a filmmaker uh, and a musician. I, uh, I've always wanted to, I guess I've always deemed myself to be somewhat creative. Um, and uh, I guess in college, I studied film. And then I got rejected from, uh, from NYU Tisch School of the Arts for grad school. And um, that sort of ended my formal career as a creative. 
Um, you know, I wasn't a very good filmmaker. This is when film actually was film where you actually had to slice stuff together. I've since gone on to do much better uh, work digitally. I did the montages for my kids, like bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs. And those videos were much better. I probably would have gotten into Tisch School of the Arts um, if I applied now. Um, but I, I ended up, um, as some uh, unsuccessful creatives do, I ended up in the business of entertainment. I worked for a talent agency, uh, William Morris, for about five years. I uh, was working in commercials, ce celebrity endorsement. Uh, rap music and rock music and uh, was uh, an incredibly um, beyond formational experience for me. It, it just was, uh, I learned a lot about servicing clients. I worked for a, a woman named Kara Lewis, who was, uh, and probably still is, top of the game in terms of rap music agents, um, representing Ice Cube, Ice T, um, Naughty by Nature, House of Pain, all the the very uh, Cypress Hill, Run DMC, I, everyone like she, yeah, she the icons of the '90s. I mean, it, it was just um, public enemy. It was literally everybody. And what I found working for her is that from a services standpoint, she just got it. In that business, there was a lot. There wasn't a lot of loyalty, meaning if you didn't take care of your clients. There was always another agent who was going to take, you know, it was a race to the bottom, you know, Kara, you're taking 10%. Well, go to ICM and they'll, they'll take 5%. Mm -hmm. So Kara tended to over-service her clients. Uh, there are some stories, you know, at one point I had to, uh, you know, one of our clients was in Europe and um, he, he was on a, I don't want to mention their name because they're, they're still out there doing their thing, but he was unable to watch his videotapes, uh, VCR tapes because of the different uh, standards in, in VCRs in Europe versus the US. And uh, Kara had me go to buy um, a combination TV VCR at an electronic store. <laughs> I, and I, I had to drive it to uh, Kennedy Airport and put it on a plane, like overnight shipping to the client. I'm like, okay, that's, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> I actually had to show up at, at a passport office and claim to know uh, one of the artists because they, they forgot their passport. They had to get the Bermuda. Or it was a whole thing. But I, I really learned, learned a great deal about servicing clients in that industry. It's, it's, it's very much a service-oriented industry. Um, my first real turn in career after that, um, my dad um, became ill and I wanted to spend more time with my dad. And he and I went into the restaurant business so I owned a restaurant for a couple of years, built it, ran it. Um, and it really wasn't until the restaurant went out of business a couple of years later that my career in technology actually started. I always had a, a very strong um, affinity for technology. I loved tinkering. I was, and I was an electronic musician even back in the early days. So I got my first job at Bloomberg where I was a customer support uh, analyst in 1997. And uh, this is like before the internet was really um, a part of Bloomberg's operations. They were still in the terminal sales business. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I started in customer service. I worked really hard, became a, a team leader uh, in customer service. And then I guess it must have been late 1998, or maybe early 99. I read an article in the New York Times about this, this thing called online advertising. And it was, it was a picture of uh, I think it must have been uh, it was the CEO and 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 president Kevin it was maybe it was Kevin Ryan or Kevin O'Connor and they were standing um, in in their new their soon to be built New York office on 33rd Street and they were building a basketball court on on, on the patio or something like, <laughs> that sounds interesting. 
this online advertising thing seems interesting. And then coincidentally, I saw an ad in the New York Times when, when there was actually you know classified ads with with job postings, mm-hmm. and they were looking for customer support representatives. And um, I took the step of emailing, and uh, I guess I must have emailed, and asking if there were uh, leadership positions in customer service that were open at DoubleClick. And uh, you know, lo and behold, someone responded. They were hiring a ton of people at the time, and they, anybody they would they, they would take anybody literally. Um, but they were looking for, for folks in customer service. I, uh, I went in and, uh, in July of 1999, I started at DoubleClick. Um, you know, at the time I felt like I was late to the party. It was 1999. The company had started in 1996, but, uh, but now I guess what is, you know, um, I don't know, 23 years later, whatever it's been, um, that company is still one of the most important companies in technology today. And, um, you know, my I spent eight years there prior to the Google acquisition, and learned. I mean, I learned. I didn't know anything about online advertising before, but came out on the other side, um, versed in online advertising, having worked with some of the greatest people in advertising, both from a technology standpoint, business standpoint, ups and downs. We grew, we shrunk a little bit, then we grew, and then um, you know, being acquired by Google in two thousand, I guess it was two thousand seven was just uh you know the end of this in- incredible narrative and, and the start of another one and you know sometimes it's a very interesting m a lesson because i think if you went back and looked at the google double click acquisition maybe after six months or a year you know some of the press even at the time was somewhat negative you know what is google doing to double click is it really working but i think google does a great job in playing the long game and if you look at what Google and DoubleClick have done together, um, it's been really transformational for how online marketing works. And even the, and certainly their acquisition of YouTube, which was, you know, looking back on it, I think they paid $1.2 billion for YouTube in 2005 yeah. or whatever. What would you have to pay for YouTube today? I don't even oh, know what the price would be. No clue, yeah. But you know, they're, they're, I think they, they have a track record of just... Um, one smart strategic decision making about who to acquire, but then also execution against the long game. And um, sorry, I digress a little bit, but you know that sort of that was my double click and, and Google career. And then, how the- important has double click been to the ecosystem in New York in general, as far as the foundation of people that have gone off like yourself and built companies? I mean, it's that was such an important company for that reason too. Absolutely. And, you know, DoubleClick does not have the largest network of of former employees, but it is, it is a super high quality network. I would say like Yahoo and AOL tend to have more expansive networks. They were much bigger companies. Um, DoubleClick though, certainly for New York and New York tech and New York ad tech has launched an incredible uh, array of talent uh, across the industry. Totally agree with you. Um, so I spent about a year or so with, uh, with Google and I guess somewhere towards the end of 2008, I was contacted on LinkedIn by, um, Ben Barocas, who is my, now he's my current co-founder, but Ben had started a company called AdMeld. Um, we had not met previously and, uh, he had reached out, wanted to have lunch, talk a little bit about what he was up to. Uh, I met Ben and uh, was taken with his 
sincerity, uh, intelligence, what he was thinking about building. And I was also really interested in, in doing something smaller at the time. And, uh, and with that, in January of 20, I guess 2009, I joined AdMeld. Um, I, was, I went from being, I don't know, employee 40,000 at Google uh, at the time to being employee, I guess, 18 at AdMeld. And um, such, you know, at, at that point, such began my, uh, my career in, uh, in startups, my first real startup gig, I guess, restaurant aside. And they were in the, where were they in the world of public, like ad tech? So I, I guess now it's sort of, um, it's just like a, a, people take it for granted that there's this notion of programmatic advertising. But if you go back to, I guess, 2006, 2007, you know, most advertising was being bought or sold based on paper, um, you know, something called an insertion order. Uh, someone would, you know, fill out some paperwork and say, I want to buy you know, um, 100,000 impressions, a million impressions on your property over the period of, you know, X days or, or, or weeks. And what AdMail did was introduce this notion of programmatic buying. Uh, so by, by leveraging data, you have the ability to make decisions in real time as to whether you want to buy that impression or not. So it was less around, you know, the, the fax machine at the time, which was filling up with insertion orders. And it was more about creating technology that allowed advertisers to set some parameters for what types of impressions would be most interesting to them and let publishers set some controls as to when or not would they transact. And you know, if you think about like a like the the um, the analogy was always the stock exchange, you know, the same way that you know stocks are, are are bought and sold, such would you know advertising impressions. And AdMeld was um, one of the first companies to to sort of pioneer this what's now called real time bidding, and um, did so with a very strong eye on digital publishers. So we created technology that was used by um, very large digital properties. Um, that, you know, with the, the one of the press releases I was alluding to earlier was I think Weather.com had launched um, a, a, what was called a private exchange using AdMail technology back in uh, 2010. And over the the course of you know, I was there for like three years uh, of the run, um, developed this incredible list of pristine clients. Uh, who loved our technology and loved our services. And, um, you know, now we, we do kind of take it for granted. Programmatic advertising is uh, ubiquitous at this point. You, you go out and at the time, if you did a, a LinkedIn search for someone with the title VP of programmatic advertising, it didn't exist. There was no such thing. And I like to think that over the course of the the time at, at, at AdMeld and subsequently at LiveRail and the other companies, we helped to develop this, this group of, of people who have this programmatic advertising skill. And now if you go out to, to LinkedIn, you'll see a bunch of people who have that as their title and people have made their careers in this, this new, uh, new sort of niche of online advertising. And the company scaled and was acquired by Google, as you already mentioned, which was a very successful exit uh, at that point in time. So, and then LiveRail, the next company. So that was uh more like video ad tech, right? 
Yeah, it, it was. And for, for me, it was a slightly different set of, of um, you know, uh, I guess it was a different stage when I joined. It was slightly larger than when I joined AdMeld, but still um, relatively early in its, I guess, revenue ramp. Um, and we were very much focused on the video space and, you know, not what it wasn't this, the same. It wasn't like taking the, the, the uh, a page out of the playbook, but some of the same things that were successful at DoubleClick and successful at AdMeld also led to our success at LiveRail. Um, and, you know, again, it all starts with, um, to me, amazing technology and amazing people. And the team at, at, um, at DoubleClick was amazing, as I said. The team at AdMeld was, again, amazing. And LiveRail was no exception. We had this incredible team and actually a bit more global and globally distributed you know, um, than, than some of the others, but amazing, amazing people and amazing technology. And you know, we built um, a programmatic advertising platform that focused on, on video. And uh, again, an incredible list of clients, uh, great technology, great people, and uh, acquired by Facebook in, I guess, 2014. All right. So that leads us to the current company, SourcePoint. So what's, um, what's the foundational story of you and your co-founder, Ben, starting SourcePoint? So after uh, the acquisition uh, of LiveRail, um, I, I guess I got together with Ben. Uh, he was still at Google at the time after the AdMeld acquisition. And we were talking about ways in which, you know, we might be able to uh, work together again. We, we wanted to try and you know, do that if we could. Uh, but we started looking around at some of the challenges in the, the ecosystem that we'd grown up in, the advertising and content ecosystem. And we became fairly convinced that there, there had been a, a missing piece um, in, in, uh, in the way in which content was consumed and paid for. And specifically, you know, it, when we thought about the 20 years that we had been you know, work, you know, consuming content online, there was very little conversation with consumers about how content was being paid for. I think, you know, back in 99, when I was at DoubleClick, I was at an all hands meeting and I think it was Kevin O'Connor at the time who was like, you know, we are keeping the internet free. And I think even if you go through very early SEC filings for DoubleClick, you'll see that that mentioned that we're keeping the internet free. And if you go to Facebook, even I think even today, if you go to Facebook, there's some sort of quote from Mark Zuckerberg that says Facebook will always be free. And Ben and I, we formed this thesis that well, you know what? That's not really true. It, it, it's not free. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's not free. It's paid for, and it's paid for primarily by advertising. Right. And what we felt is that there had been this, this real uh, lack of, of um, communication between consumers and the content owners about how content was paid for. And at the time, it was manifesting itself in, in specifically in one specific use case, which was the use of ad blockers. So... You know, I don't, I'm not sure how familiar you are with ad blockers, but when you use one, the ads go away. When the ads go away, the money go, goes away. And our belief was when the money goes away, so does the content. And this free-flowing society of information that we've grown up on 
would also vanish and go away. So we felt that if we could create technology that allowed for transparency and discussion and dialogue about how content was paid for, we would be able to return uh, this content ecosystem to sustainability. And you know, so no small you know, aspiration, but that's really what we set out to do. We set out to create technology that would allow for a sustainable content ecosystem. And again, this is um, 2015. It was three years prior to GDPR. Um, but we knew that this, this notion of dialogue between consumers and content owners was um, was important, and if we did it did it right, there there would be something there. And uh, Ben and I were both looking at the time to take uh, a bigger swing at things. We didn't want to just, you know, do something that like a we didn't want to do a retread of something that had been done previously. We we, we were both really energized at the idea of doing something new and different and, and taking a bigger swing at it. Um, so we got to work. We built our uh, our dialogue platform and launched that in 2016, and started working with websites um, to offer their consumers different choices about how content would be paid for. And as we did, we started to you know bring on more more clients, grew the team. We built our German uh, and UK presence, and then we paid very close attention to what was happening from a regular regulatory perspective with GDPR. We, we felt strongly that GDPR um, would present to us this incredible use case for transparency. And we developed um, what was called a consent management platform. Um, and when GDPR launched, we were, we were right there with our CMP as it's called. And we started uh, selling that to, to to our clients, and uh, you know to this you know to this day we we work with some of the largest uh, websites in the world. We power their compliance efforts across uh, across their websites. Uh, we've developed additional products that allow for uh, different levels of compliance. Whether you're a, a website who wants to understand if there's privacy risk on your site, or if you're an advertiser who wants to try and assess the the quality of privacy experience on the sites that you're buying advertising on. Uh, so we have a handful of products. We we continue to operate in quite global fashion. Um, teams in New York, uh, Berlin, the UK, France, um, and now thanks to the pandemic, a bunch of other smaller locations uh, around the world. But uh, that's kind of where we're at today, seven years later. Which is a great story because you're like have this idea of what could happen yet, you know, it took three years. It's not like you're in the market product market fit immediately. Like I'm sure you started to get some traction, but once GDPR took shape, it was like, okay, companies have to have this in, in order to be in compliance. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it's, um, you know, it's not always the, the straight run for, for a startup. And, you know, I would say, you know, as a founder, it's, the, the most important thing is that you're coming in every day, seven years later, feeling that that thing you set out to do at the very beginning is still the thing that we're setting out to do today. And I think while there, you know, it's been seven years and there have been a, a, you know, a few twists along the way, the one thing that hasn't changed is this, this notion of driving transparency. And you know, when I talk about the business today, 
it is with the same level of excitement and enthusiasm we had when we started it. And, you know, that is why, you know, seven years later, I could still, you know, work as, as hard as I do, um, be as committed to the business as I am, and be as excited about our, our prospects, because what we set out to do seven years ago is still what we're setting out to do today. You know, can we bring more transparency to the society on some level, right? Can there be um, greater communication with consumers about how their data is being used? And there are some products that we have in market where I feel like if we do, if we, if our products grow to the extent we want them to grow, the world has gotten better for digital publishers, for digital advertisers and consumers. And I think for, for us, that feels really good. Not everyone in the industry can, can look around and say that. For us, you know, we check ourselves regularly, like, okay, we still think we're making the world better for all parties. And that, that part has been uh, rewarding, certainly for uh, the, 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 the source point uh, experience. Yeah, and it's, it's something that's becoming even more and more and more meaningful. Like just consumers are getting a lot more savvy around privacy and what their data, like, yeah, Facebook's free, but no, it's not. Your data is a currency that allows the advertisers to uh, obviously position their ads to you. And uh, so I think consumers are sharp, like that. there's way more intelligent around the realities of the internet or mobile apps. And then things that Apple's doing with iOS and changes there and how that's affecting Facebook and other, you know, app publishers. So it's crazy, but source points right in the thick of it. Yeah. And in general, I think you, you raise a really interesting point about when you mentioned both Apple and Facebook, you know, they come at it from two very, very different, you know, sides. I'm not sitting here on this zoom on a Facebook laptop. I'm on an Apple laptop and Apple as a, as a, as a business, is not uh, primarily reliant on advertising, whereby, whereby Facebook is. And because of that, Apple is in this very sort of, uh, I think, interesting position where they can make, they could take privacy and turn it into a marketing plank, which they have done. And if you think about the campaigns that they have launched, if you think about the features that they have implemented, whether it's you know restrictions on IDFA, um, uh, the, the, the obfuscation of email address, there, there's a bunch of things that they have done that they are able to do because they are not relying on advertising. And it puts a lot of pressure, a ton of pressure on others, Facebook, it took, puts a ton of pressure on Google as well. And, you know, Google is very interesting because on one hand, you know, they, they obviously have an Android operating system. They compete on some level with Apple as it relates to mobile devices, but they have very different business models. And Google has to tread a whole lot more carefully as far as their stances on privacy. And they've done some things. They're, 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 they tend to be fast followers, in some cases not as fast, but they, they tend to follow and will eventually get to the places that Apple has gotten to, but not usually not with the same level of gusto or uh, or or um or ultimately like uh, controls, like some of the stuff that Google has done, it gets almost all the way there, but not nearly as far as Apple has gone. Yeah, so true, so true. So what source point now, like what's the size of the company in terms of employees and growth plans ahead? Yeah, we're a little under a hundred folks uh, globally. Um, right now split fairly evenly between the US and Europe. 
And uh, we were, we've actually last year launched a new product. It's called Privacy Lens, which is a privacy measurement product, allowing advertisers to understand the privacy quality of the, the media they're buying. And um, with that, there's a, a ton of growth opportunity for us, uh, both in terms of the product growth, but also employees. We're doing a, a ton of hiring as well, um, which has been, you know, obviously you probably know as well as anyone, uh, the pandemic has had, you know, fairly significant implications on hiring, but uh, we're out there growing the team. We have, uh, you know, pipeline of great candidates that we're talking to on a regular basis, for sure. What's it like to work there? What's the culture like? Um, the thing, one thing that we do, and I, having worked at other, you know, global companies, I, I think I can say this with with pretty, you know, high level of confidence. We're really global. <laughs> like, um, there are some companies who will say that, oh, we're, we're you know truly global oriented, but I think, you know, we we operate in a real global uh, fashion. In that, when when a feature request comes in from a client, for example, in some companies, if it's a European client and it's a U.S. based company, it might not see the light of day. It might be sort of looked at somewhat. You know, I don't know, a lower priority. For us, our client feedback, no matter where it comes from, it matters. And that, that, the, the partnership, the training, the, the coordination between our teams, um, it's not on, like this morning, for example, we had a call uh, with a client in Asia and it was myself, it was six in the morning in New York, myself and someone from my team uh, in New York was, were on this call at 6 a.m., along with one of my, uh, my peers in the UK, taking care of a client. And, you know, we don't necessarily ask that of our team every day, but we truly operate in this global configuration. Um, we help each other out globally. Um, you know, since GDPR, I tend to work European hours on some level, at least in the morning, um, you know, up early you know, on Slack with members of my team. And I think more so than other companies that I've, I've been a part of, I think we've, we've really got the, the sort of international cohesion down. So that's culturally, that's really important. The other, and maybe this is obvious based on some of the stuff I've said already, we, we truly put clients front and center uh, in our operations. Um, we take really good care of our clients and we hire for that. Um, you try to train for that though. In actuality, it's kind of hard to train. You have to really have the right people who love taking care of, of clients. But we also think that once you have a few people, a few cultural carriers from a, a services standpoint, it does allow you to, to, to bring folks in and they get indoctrinated into this, this service oriented culture. And it's a huge part of what we do. Uh, we won in, in the UK last year, um, uh, best media partner. Uh, from the uh, the AOP, we're shortlisted for that award again this year, and we're really proud of that. So um, really global, um, definitely service oriented, and the, this this last one culturally, it's I don't know if it's a culture thing, but it definitely is one of the things that um, that that is part of who we are. I guess it is would you say cultural? Um, is that we sit in this like very interesting intersection between ad technology and data privacy. And maybe that's obvious that we do that, but those two spaces 
on their own are each incredibly complicated. The ad technology um, evolution is very hard to keep up with. Um, it's hard to really understand all the ins and outs of programmatic advertising across OTT, mobile, desktop, all the different environments. That in and of itself is a very challenging space. And then you layer on top of it data privacy regulation. And not just in Europe, not just in California, but in Connecticut now, in Utah, in Colorado, in Virginia, in Canada, in all the different places have all different regulations. So when you think about us sitting in, in this, in the intersection of data privacy and ad technology, it creates a fairly high bar for um, expertise and knowledge. So we do have, you know, we, we look for continuous learners, people who will come in and truly engage in, in understanding some of the, the changes that are happening in both of those sides of the ecosystem. It's really complicated. Yeah, no, it's, it's so, so complicated. I mean, I know there was a lot of companies that were in the programmatic advertising space kind of emerging, but, you know, there's a few that really thrive, AdMel being one of them. Uh, it's very complex technology to build. So in terms of complexity, building a startup is complex and scaling it in terms of the operations and hiring is very, very challenging. So what advice would you give to founders in terms of doing just that? Like, how do you scale hiring? I mean, in a market like this, especially, it's just like incredibly complex and just like supporting the operations to build the startup. Yeah, I would say it's, it's there's there's no obviously easy answer. Um, I would say for for better or worse, you know, definitely early on in in, in your company, um, you know, I, I still interview every single person before they get an offer um, at at SourcePoint, at AdMeld. Uh, I I think I was employee eighteen and we grew to about one fifty. I think I was on point for initial phone screens for. I don't know, like 80% of those hires that happen between 18 and 150. And, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm not an HR recruiter by trade, but I care greatly about the folks who join my company. And, you know, I think, um, you know, if you're 18 employees and you're, you're hiring five people, those five people become a pretty significant percentage of the company. So, you know, for me, I always have made time for that process. Um, I think on some level, I'm lucky in that I enjoy that part of the process. I like talking to candidates. Um, I like giving candidates an opportunity to understand why I started the company, why Ben and I started the company. Um, so, you know, that's one thing that I would say is, especially in the early days, don't think you're, you, you, can, uh, you can delegate that um, without peril. And I, I think there are, there are some, in some cases, you probably can find someone to do it just as well as you. They'll have the, they'll have their own, you know, read on, um, you know, what the right folks are that you're looking for. But I've always made, uh, made it a priority to talk to candidates and find great people. The other um, thing that I would say also from a recruiting perspective is a certain level of flexibility. And what I mean by that is like, you can sit in, even in a small company, you can have a planning meeting and you can say, okay, we're going to, here's the headcount plan. And, you know, we're going to bring in people in 
you know, box X, Y, or Z. But sometimes you meet someone who's in, you know, box A or box B, you know, different box altogether, but you feel that they can move the needle for your, your business. And I think in general with startups, what coming from big companies and then working at startups, especially, you want to bring a level of process to what you're doing, even in a small company, but you want to be flexible as well. And you want to move fast. That's one of your, it should be one of your advantages as a startup. So if you find someone who's, you know, terrific, but they might not fit perfectly into the specific spec you have open, you have to have an element of flexibility in how you approach, um, you know, those sorts of uh, candidates. And just generally like the people component of an early stage startup can't be, you know, uh, overstated. It's so important and so obvious. Um, and then I think generally, you know, for, for a small company, um, I think you want to be careful in how you introduce process, but you want to introduce process. Um, That's one of the things coming out of a big company and working for a smaller one that you can bring to the table. You've seen things work in bigger environments. And then, you know, the question is, can you right size a process for a smaller operation? Can you take something that was maybe a bear to manage at a bigger, bigger company? And can you implement the light version that allows you to execute at scale and with pace in a smaller environment. And that's something I've tried to do uh, pretty much in all, all the roles that I've, I've taken on in smaller companies is like, there tend to be like um, specific areas of process that are, that are needed in every company, you know, how, uh, how the services team engages with a new client, um, how billing works, um, you know, what, what is the, 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 the sales process? And usually you could take uh, a larger company process, find the things that are truly critical and pivotal and apply them to even a smaller context without slowing down the organization. That's been one of my, uh, my learnings as well. The role of a chief operating officer, like how people get to that role is not a linear path. Like, so like what advice would you have to others that like have that aspiration of becoming a chief operating officer yet it's not like okay i'm a software engineer i become a manager a director vp cto or something you know it's like like coo there's different twisty turny ways to get there so what advice would you have on on getting to that type of position yeah it's a good question and i, I would say that also coo at different companies means many different things and i've now i've been a coo since 2009 i guess it's been so um and and the, the the COO roles that I've played have all been somewhat different. Um, at my company today, you know, I, I've got really broad responsibility. It includes you know product and technology, uh, people operations um, as direct organiz- uh, direct areas of responsibility. But then, I think the the thing that I would say about COO that that's consistent across all companies is, you know, you, you have to sort of you have to take a broad view of, of your, your remit, but recognize that you're not going to be managing all those things directly. And I think for me, that's always been the way I've approached the role. I, I um, you don't do, you tend not to do it with a, a whole lot of ego. It's just a matter of like, okay, what do we need to do to get the company from where we're at now to where we want to be? And, you know, f- for me, a lot of the, you know, my, the, the work that I, I do at all companies is sort of informed by that. And every company is a little different. Um, 
you know, you, you find the areas of um, influence and the areas you could have impact and you try to exploit those to, so you can drive your company towards success. Uh, in terms of how I got there, I, I, I don't think I, I really knew I wanted to be a COO uh, early on in my career. At some point at the end, I mean, it was like 2007 at, at DoubleClick, I was a vice president of operations or vice president of services. And I started to think about ways in which I could take my experience forward. And I thought a lot about what I had developed from a toolkit standpoint. And I'm like, okay, there's this title out there called COO. I didn't really know exactly what that, that meant, but it was, it was helpful to have that sort of as a, as a goal. And when I joined uh, AdMeld, um, you know, they, it was a very small company at the time but they didn't have anyone running um, HR or people operations. And that was my mechanism of expanding from being just a services executive to being a COO. I took on the services piece and then I expanded to include people operations and HR. And, you know, that was sort of the, for me, the moment where I was able to transition and, and become a COO. Um, and I haven't looked back. The, the role for me has changed a little bit over time but uh, there are always similar areas of responsibility, some element of culture, people, uh, finance in some cases, product, again, a little bit of everything. Um, but uh, it does vary depending on the environment that you're in and also the company size, obviously. You're very busy building a company, but uh, outside of work, what, what do you like to do for fun? Um, I have three kids and a wife, so I do spend time uh, with my my family as much as I can. Um, I'm a musician, and I still, every once in a while, will will try to play the piano uh, here and there. Um, before COVID, I was in uh, uh, myself, my brother-in-law, and his brother. We have a, a band we play out uh, from time to time. Um, this year I told myself I was going to learn how to use pro tools, which is re recording software and start making some music again, mm -hmm. which I, uh, I stumbled through the first quarter of 2022 and wrote some fairly terrible music. And, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's about it. Uh, I do have one of these fancy microphones now as a result of my, uh, my music career. And I think that's, that's pretty much what I do. Um, that, uh, the, the, for fun, it, it's mostly music, uh, I would say. Well, Brian, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, all the great experience you've had along the way of different companies and startups, of course, the work you're doing at SourcePoint and uh, all the other advice you shared. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I very much appreciate it. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.